Vine Pairs New York City headquarters. I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. And before we get started today, a word from our sponsors. Vine Pair, in partnership with Remy Martin, presents the Bartender Talent Academy, an exciting cognac cocktail competition. Showcase your most creative sidecar cocktail recipe to compete for a chance at the grand prize, a trip to Cognac, France in October to test your skills against the world's best. All you need is a shaker and a passport. Visit www.bartendertalentacademy.com for all competition details. And now, I was right. I was right. I was right. I was right. Is this a recurring segment we're going to be doing? I just want everyone to know that I was right. Now, I'm sure that there are predictions that I make on this show that I just don't ever talk about again because, you know. (laughs) That's the key to making predictions. (laughs) I do want to be clear that, yet again, I was right. And so what what, what am I talking about? So basically, you know, for for those who listen, you you know that we talked a lot about how uh, we had predictions for what was going to happen in the world of on-premise after things started to reopen. And one of the predictions that was made was, by yours truly, was that we felt that people would start to – if they were going back to uh, drink at cocktail bars and at restaurants, it was going to be much more likely that they were going to order drinks that felt more complex than sort of the cocktails they learned to make at home and signature cocktails than be willing to go out and just drink a Negroni or you know a martini or something like that, something that they had already perfected at home. And with the initial data that's coming out, we are seeing that that is in fact correct. So the first data that we have is actually coming from Breakthrough Beverage and their CGA survey. And that survey found that basically they've seen a large number of requests from bars and restaurant owners who are looking to reopen with refresh menus featuring new creative cocktails that are using high quality craft spirits. And for the past year, with many consumers being stuck in their homes, mixing classic cocktails like the old-fashioned Manhattan and Margarita, like we said they were doing, restaurateurs realized they needed to look for other ways to attract customers back to the bar by adding innovative new cocktail recipes using brands also not typically found on the consumer's home bar. The same CGA report found that three in five cocktail drinkers look at the cocktail menu every single time they go out, and that two in five of those drinkers likely choose a signature cocktail. So, yep, it's all coming. <laughs> it's all coming. It's all coming as we said go. it would. Uh, I thought so, this was going to be another you know, Cosmo brag, but, you know. No, that'll, that'll come later when that's also proven correct. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, you know, just, just I feel like it's, it's just, it's, it really reinforces to those of you out there listening, there's a reason you listen to myself, Joanna, and Zach, and we appreciate it. But also, I just really like when, you know, I make a random prediction and it actually comes out to be true. So I would say say that one was an informed prediction. It It was was very informed. Not random. It was very informed. Um, But yeah, so I mean, it's interesting, though, to see that, like, actually what we thought would happen has happened. Um, And I definitely have seen that a lot when I've been out. There's, I feel like there's a lot more signature cocktails and what I see people ordering definitely feels like cocktails that are unique to a place as opposed to, you know, going out and seeing a lot of people with, you know, Negronis on their, on their table, et cetera. Even more, you know, even what I used to see a lot of like margaritas and stuff, I don't feel like I see as much of, unless you're, you're at a restaurant that that's what it's known for. Yeah. So I I definitely think this is true for me. Is it true for both of you? Oh, for sure. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I think there's, you know, no matter what level of competence and confidence you had as a home bartender, 
I think uh, it was put to the test during COVID, during quarantine. And, you know, maybe some people, you know, as we talked about over the the year plus on the podcast, some people maybe got real ambitious and decided to start doing some really elaborate things. But most people probably went up one level from their previous home bartending familiarity. They maybe added a couple of recipes. And that includes me, frankly. I made some drinks that I didn't make very often or, or hadn't made at home. But there's still something about the just the realities that a bar has or a restaurant has in its favor of being able to carry ingredients that the average person is just not going to want to have on their bar because they're going to use it once a year or, um, you know, create custom elements, whether it's, you know, syrups, infusions, um, you know, even garnishes. I mean, I think this is a thing that's fascinating to me, too, and, and maybe we'll talk about in another episode, is this sort of, you know, there was this whole... It was just kind of pushback pre-COVID on garnishes because they were seen as wasteful. And, you know, this whole idea that like, you know, really should you be, you know, putting all this, you know, produce often into a drink purely for the kind of visual appeal. And I think that there's a, you know, there's a, there's a line of, of argumentation there that I don't totally disagree with, but I do think there's also this thing of, you know, whether, whatever form of the presentation it is, in addition to just the complexity of the drink, like that is what, people are looking for now. They want to be 1000% sure they are not in their home. Totally. And that includes me. For sure. <laughs> uh, so now that we uh, have, have gotten that out of the way, what have you guys, what have you both been drinking recently? Joanna? <laughs> well, it's been pretty low key for me actually since, <laughs> since we've uh, gotten, gotten back from our trip, but we did on Friday night, make some martinis with Wheatley vodka which I was very curious to try after yes. we <laughs> published Aaron Goldfarb's piece on Wheatley Vodka recently. And it was surprisingly flavorful, as promised, um, for a vodka, I guess. What was your like what was your recipe? Oh, just very a very, very dry vodka martini. <laughs> like a maybe like a rinse of vermouth. Interesting. And then olive mm-hmm, un- olive, yes, olive. Nice. Very simple. Yeah. Exactly what about you? Well, I was so inspired a little bit by a previous podcast a couple of weeks ago about the modern classics. I have been making myself a paper plane um, from time to time. Nice. Uh, so, uh, yeah, you know, so I, I prefer mine with rye and then uh, some Aperol and uh, Amarone Nino and some lemon juice, uh, a tasty cocktail. Um, I think the other thing that I've had recently that I've been really enjoying is um, for whatever whatever set of reasons, and and I'm not totally sure what they are. Um, I feel like there've been a lot of local breweries here in the Seattle area that have really decided to kind of try to create their own versions of what they're calling a Mexican lager. And I think you could kind of have, you could kind of sort of, there's something there about what exactly defines that category in the same way that any kind of lager, you know, what you're exactly trying to call it. But um, there have been, it's been this summer or spring and summer so far, there, I've seen a, a real proliferation of them. Um, and so there are a couple of breweries here that have made ones that I've given a try to. And, you know, it's getting to be relatively nice here. And and there is something about that style of beer in the sunshine that is just very enjoyable. I mean, like all, you know, kind of lagers and, and lighter styles, um, Pilsners and the like, there's something about that general category that obviously fits really well with the summertime. Um, but it's kind of interesting to see a sort of craft mentality applied to a category that we usually associate with, you know, very large scale production. What have you been having, Adam? So I had my first Tommy's margarita of the summer. Well. So that was, that was the biggest, uh, you know, the, the, the best thing that I've had this last week was just, I made a batch, uh, went to the beach for the weekend and 
Um, they were just absolutely delicious. Uh, and I had it with a really interesting new tequila called De Nada. Uh, it's another one of the tequilas that I think is uh, really interesting, you know, positioning itself in terms of what it is not in it as opposed to what yeah. is, right? So the idea of, you know, nothing added besides pure agave, sort of, you know, no additives type positioning is, is really, you know, where I think a lot of premium tequilas are trying to stake their claim, you know, uh, obviously, we've been doing a bunch with Patron here at Vinepair, and they obviously don't add any additives to their tequilas. Uh, Donata is another one. You have, um, you know, a bunch of others, and it's it's interesting to to see that that's becoming this pivot point between tequilas, right? It's like we're the people that just use pure agave and harvest it when it's correct, and then there's the other people who are trying to keep up with demand, and they may not be harvesting agave when it's the right time, and also they could be adding a lot of other things to mask the fact that that's what happened. Um, but it was it was tasty. I mean, again, I think when when the tequila is really good and you know it has a lot of flavor on its own, that's all you really need besides the lime juice and the agave. You know, it really you you taste all of those amazing herbaceous notes from the tequila, and I I definitely find myself preferring that style of margarita to you know the margaritas that we classically think of that have, you know, the triple sec or things like that in them. But I've waxed on and off about the, <laughs> you know, the Tommy's margarita before, so we don't need to hear that anymore. Uh, so let's just get into today's, uh, you know, today's subject, why I bask in the glow of being right. Um, and so <laughs> today we want to talk a little bit about bulk wine. And I thought, Joanna, you could kick this conversation off because we wrote an interesting uh, piece about bulk wine. We published an interesting piece about bulk wine on the site recently, which created a lot of debate, which is why we wanted to have this conversation in the first place. So do you want to kick us off? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think the impetus for the piece originally came from this idea that Spain is actually the world's largest um, producer of bulk wine. We were talking about this on the editorial team, and it got us to kind of thinking that, like, what how many people actually know about bulk wine? <laughs> I certainly didn't. So this was a piece that was written for us kind of exploring just that, like why isn't anybody talking about bulk wine? And actually in working with this writer, um, she mentioned along, you know, in reporting the piece that there were, there was a lot of reluctance um, from on, the, on behalf of winemakers to talk about bulk wine or go on the record about bulk wine, which I think is really interesting um, because I think it offers a lot. I mean, it's a huge part of the wine industry. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that is basically this piece is exploring like how it is such a huge part of the wine industry that nobody really talks about. And I think it's important maybe just for the sake of listeners who aren't, who maybe like you, Joanna, aren't familiar or mm-hmm. weren't familiar with the term you know, what we're, what we're generally talking about here, and, and I think, you know, technical definitions can vary a little bit from country to country and things like that. But essentially, the idea of bulk wine is wine that is um, produced and then generally shipped kind of before being bottled. So it might be shipped in, you know, very large uh, bladders, it might be shipped in other kinds of tanker con- and containers. Um, and then it's, and it's a, it's sort of a commodity, I guess, is another way to think about it. So bulk wine can be very, very generic. It can be just, you know, wine, literally as generic as that, all the way down to relatively specific. You can buy quote unquote bulk wine that's, you know, a sub AVA within Napa Valley. Obviously the two are going to come at very different prices, but, but the idea is that essentially it doesn't have, what it doesn't have attached to it is a recognizable winery. Um, it's not, right. it's not a state bottled, um, and 
what that means is a lot of different things. And I think we'll get into that over the course of the conversation. But I think it's important to note that like one of the reasons why people don't like to talk about bulk wine is we think of it as being um, inferior. And, you know, like some of it is very, very cheap, kind of like, yeah, mass produced innocuous wine, whether it's made in the Central Valley of California, whether it's made in the South of France, in parts of Spain, Italy, et cetera, like all over the world where wine is made, there's bulk wine. And some, and again, it can vary wildly in terms of quality and in terms of you know complexity. But it's also the case that like, oftentimes there are, and I'll get into this maybe a little later, but there are like very positive things about the bulk wine market too. Um, but but I'm just curious, you know, Adam, from, from your perspective and in yours too, Joanna, like do you have a sense for when you see wines on store shelves, whether you like, you feel like you can identify when a wine is made from sort of, you know, essentially bulk juice. So the thing about bulk wine, I think is really interesting is that first of all, you are, you actually kind of know it when you see it in a lot of cases. So uh, a lot of ways that, you know, you can identify bulk wine is when it's in brands that may have a bunch of different offerings from different places you see this a lot recently in sort of like these wine startups, right? So brands that sort of been created and they're either in can or, you know, box, some in bottle, whatever, but they're, you know, you can grab them all back from Argentina and then you can also get a Sauvignon Blanc from New Zealand. And very often all of that was bulk wine that was bought on a market. You can actually search uh, on an online site. It's, it's pretty easy to find actually for bulk wines and, and sort of like check their prices. Um, that's how like you always wonder how does someone who like was let's say someone who worked at I don't know McKinsey or BCG or whatever and had an idea for a wine startup how did they figure out how to source wine in the first place because they probably went to this site <laughs> in all honesty amazing, and then honestly, yeah. yeah and then like and then like flew down and met the winemaker potentially and then as you said Zach it comes over in a massive you know on a on a you know shipping container inside a massive pla- plastic bag that's like the bag inside of a box you know a box of boxed wine just even, even bigger goes into one of these facilities, goes into a tank and then gets bottled in their cans or their bottles, whatever. And again, a lot of these wines are good, right? That's not like, I'm not trying to make this say as you know, that the fact that it's run by someone who didn't have wine experience, whatever means the wine is bad. I think that's what makes it so much more interesting is like, this is how people who maybe didn't go to viticulture school or, you know, weren't in the industry to begin with, but are huge wine lovers are actually Able and and have really great entrepreneurial instincts are able to start wine brands because this market does exist. The other way that you know bulk wine is has been really interesting is to make um, you know wines better. Um, so yeah. a lot of times you also have bulk wine that gets shipped in and then is mixed in where it's allowed um, to you know wines potentially made in you know other parts of the country of our country. Um, it may mean that now they, those wines can't carry certain designations, but you know, there's oftentimes we drink wines here in the U S that we, you know, assume are made, you know, 100% in California, but maybe it doesn't say California on the label, but you know, everything else sort of makes us think it's a California wine, but it's very possible that, you know, that's been mixed in with wines from other countries where the, the cost of growing those grapes and making the wine is cheaper. Right. For, and you can still get a higher quality wine that way. And so it allows for, you know, wineries to deliver, a more consistent and delicious product on, and now we're talking really like, you know, the supermarket shelf, et cetera. Um, then they would be able to, if they were only relying on wine, you know, grapes grown in certain areas of, of the U S because, you know, it's gotten really expensive to grow, you know, 
wine in certain areas of the US. It's uh, And as that has gotten more expensive, that means that that raises the cost of the wine on the shelf and no yeah. one wants that. So that's the, the the two kind of ways that you can think about bulk wine or the, or how you really know when you see it. The most, the main way though really is in a lot of these like sort of negotiant-esque style brands, unless you're a negotiant, like as we've talked to Zach, you know, in the past, someone like Mary Taylor, who sure. is literally like going over and she's buying wine from winemakers and putting their names on the bottle and things like that. She's not going yeah. over and being like, this is my Bordeaux. Mm-hmm. And then that's it, right? She's letting you know where it was made, et cetera. But a lot of places who are going over and be like, this is my Bordeaux. Yeah, that's bulk Bordeaux. <laughs> yeah. That's what it is. One. And you see it in like, you know, not just in some of these newfangled startups, but like, you know, Kirkland Signature or whatever, right? Like Costco's right. brands totally. are all bulk right. wine based, yeah, Trader Joe's, et cetera. And, and I actually want to say one other thing and then I, and Joanna, then I have a question for you. So mm-hmm. um, it's also important to recognize that uh, despite the kind of attempts to, to sometimes to demonize bulk wine, it, it actually has a couple of other really important utilities. And one of them is as an insurance policy for growers and winemakers, because as we've seen, um, you know, here on the West Coast over the last few years, you know, you can have really, really difficult growing conditions. You can have um, drought years, you can have fire years, you can have both. Um, you can have just all kinds of instability. And the existence of a robust bulk wine market, both here and overseas as well, for a lot of growers, it's not that in their intention when they set out with a vintage is to make bulk wine. It may be that for a set of circumstances, some or even in unfortunate cases, all of their wine just is not, doesn't fit, you know, in the... It's not the style that they're looking for, that their that their customer base uh, expects. Um, you know, maybe it's a low and not quite at the quality that they want. And in the bulk market, that might matter less because either people are looking to do different things with it, or it's going to be used. It could be used, as we pointed out, for vermouth, or it could be used for other kinds of products that aren't necessarily just pure wine products. And um, and but it's important for for growers and winemakers to know that there's. Yeah, it's not the most profitable way to turn your wine in, but it's better to get something for that than to literally dump it all down the drain, which would be the other option without a robust bulk wine market. And the other piece of this is, is you know, in the same way that the bag and box is a lot more um, environmentally friendly than glass bottles, so too is shipping wine across the world in essentially enormous bags and boxes <laughs> or bags and containers, as opposed to shipping a bunch of glass bottles. And while all of us, to some extent, have a romanticism, myself very much included, of the estate bottled, you know, wine that then rests in some, you know, mushroomy cellar in Europe for for five years, and then is shipped over in a refrigerated container and all that. Like, that's all great, but that's all pretty, you know, that's pretty bougie. And like, it's also just not realistic for the the most wine. It's not necessary for most wine. And frankly, I think, you know, a big part of the problem here potentially is, you know, to, to use your Mary Taylor example, you know, I think Mary would be thrilled if she could bottle in the U.S. It would save a lot of money, totally. be a lot more environmentally friendly. But the EU does not allow you to use AOC or other controlled um, denominations if the wine is not bottled within that appellation, um, let alone outside of the EU. Um, and look, you know, they have reasons for that. I understand they're protecting their their longstanding traditions and their and frankly their financial interest in, in keeping those industries in those places, not just the winemaking, but of course the the attendant um, commerce that goes with it. But it does mean that if you want to have wine from a lot of other places, you have to bring in you know intact bottles or other vessels, and and that is. You know that again. It's it's pretty. It's much less environmentally friendly than shipping essentially just the wine. Um, and so again, you know, bulk wine, like we said at the beginning, 
gets a bad rap. Some of it's, you know, there's certainly bad wine made from bulk wine out there, but frankly, there's bad estate wine out there too. I've had it. Yeah. So I don't know. But Joanne, I have I have a question I want to ask you about this, which is specifically for you, like with with these wines that that are like Adam was describing with um, you know, that that are from these maybe uh what you know, negotiants or these startups and things like that, like like do what are your like how do you think about those wines? Like do you do you kind of reject them out of hand? Are you interested in what they are or, or like how do they kind of connect to you? I don't know. I think for me because I, it doesn't, I don't think that I'm not interested in any of these. Wow. That was all jumbled. Maybe I can just say that. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I, I feel like I don't think one way or the other about them that maybe that's just where I'm at in my wine journey. But um, yeah, I feel like I, I don't necessarily have a preference when I see something like that. I think if I'm willing to try it. Yeah. I mean, I think like the whole bulk wine is just so interesting because you know it is it is this thing that everyone knows exists but doesn't want to talk about and as you said it is this thing that like not only is this great insurance policy but it actually can make wine better in a lot of ways it you know if we were able to get away with some of you know if we were able to do away with some of these requirements of AOC etc we could maybe you know utilize what we've learned in, in that to bottle wines in another country in order to make, you know, to, to bring down carbon emissions, et cetera, which would be awesome. Um, and it is this thing that really is what a majority of consumers come in contact with when they first come in contact with wine in a lot of ways, right? Like if you're, if your first experience in wine is buying wine at, you know, Costco under the Kirkland brand or, you know, Trader Joe's or a bunch of different grocery stores across the country where you're, you know, especially if you're looking at under the $10 price point, et cetera, you're probably experiencing bulk wine. And those wines are still really great and they get more people into wine. So I, I that's why I thought it was so interesting when Joanny said that it was hard to get people to talk about the piece um, because it's, it's so integral to wine as a whole, right? It's, it's what, you know, it is part of the world of wine. And so I don't see why we're so, you know, reluctant to chat about it. Well, but I think here's a big piece of it is that, again, there is a certain romanticism that's connected to wine, right? Like we, wine, and I mean, I'm guilty of this from time to time, certainly lots of other people are too, of thinking only about wine in this one way, which is like, as this, you know, way to reflect the terroir, right? The sense of place in the thing. And fine. I mean, that's maybe my own personal and professional biases showing, and and I have a, a certain affinity for that kind of wine. But I think it's it's also disingenuous to think about wine only in that way, because for so many people, that is not how they experience all any wine or most wine in their life. Like the, the wine in their life is, as we talked about, you know, whether it's from these, um, you know, sort of private labels um, from you know, relatively big producers, whether they're, or, you know, big uh, retailers, whether they're here in the U.S. Or, or abroad, it's it's bulk wine in one form or another. And to, ta- to say to all those people, what you're drinking isn't really wine, like you pour simple yeah. thin, is, is a very, very bad habit of, of the wine industry. And it's, you know, not exclusive to the wine industry. You see this, I think, in other beverage alcohol categories, but far more severely than in any other. I mean, I don't think you would see most professional, you know, most beer professionals, would they look down their nose a tiny bit at Bud Light? Maybe, but I think they also probably drink Bud Light from time to time. Like it's not seen as like 
you can't possibly enjoy craft beer if you have ever once enjoyed, uh, you know, essentially the the equivalent of bulk wine in the beer space and or or in vodka or in, you know, gin or whatever. And yet I do think it is important with with all that being said to, to make one point here, too, on the flip side, which is the one one of the few downsides, in my opinion, to the bulk wine market is it does unfortunately also allow for relatively it allows for hiding of either inferior product or sometimes product that is made in a way that I find to be personally, um, let's say, uh, not that, that seems to be made unethically. So whether that's, hmm. you know, incredible amounts of, of fertilizer and pesticides in certain places, whether that's exploiting labor in certain places, like not that those things don't exist in estate wines. They do also for sure. Um, but I think that there is sometimes a disconnect and it happens, I think, more with bulk wine than with estate wine, although not exclusively in either category, where people, because wine comes in often in a fancy finished package, we don't think a lot about what what it takes to get it from the earth to there. And and with bulk wine and, and wines that are made from it, sometimes those, I think, sort of unsavory practices are just easier to hide because there's so little transparency about where the 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 starting point of the wine was yeah i mean i agree i think uh you know that's that is the one issue you can get into with anything that's bulk right is that you know we there's always a a tendency in that regard to then try to produce as much as possible and when you try to do that you definitely do run into the you know problem of potentially using things that you know allow for much larger production more easily you know, we, we deal with that with the production of fruits, with, you know, with anything yes. really, oh, agriculture, course, yeah. you know, um, and that does suck about it. And, you know, you would hope that there, there could be a push to say like, look, you know, bulk wine's fine. We're, we're all okay with it, but like, it'd be, it'd be ideal if that, that bulk wine was, you know, organic, et cetera, you know, and still produced in a way that's, it's good for the environment. Um, but, you know. <laughs> And and I think that is that that is a lot of the reason that I'm really okay with people having an issue with bulk wine. I just wish that's what people would say. Like I feel like that is totally valid, right? That issue of like, look, I'm not a huge fan of bulk wine because I think that there's too much of it's produced in ways that are not great for the for the environment is totally valid. Versus um, that it's not quality wine. Right. That it's not quality, it's not cool, it's not, you know, it's I mean, the people making bulk wine are still very talented winemakers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so, so that's when I, I, when the snobbery comes out is when I get annoyed. Um, you know, if, if you can articulate why you don't like something besides what you just said, Joanna, like, then I totally hear you and I actually agree with you. But if you can't articulate that and instead it's about that, it's just like, that's not real wine. Uh, it is actually, I yeah. mean, the definition of wine, it's what it is. I don't know what else to tell you. Yeah. It's all fermented grape juice in one sense. So <laughs> totally. Um, this has been really interesting uh, discussion guys. Thank you so much for, for indulging in it. Uh, it was a great piece. If you haven't read it already, you can find it on vinepair.com and check it out. Joanna, Zach, I was right. <laughs> and I'll see you guys next uh, week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. 
and it really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also, I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair's tasting director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.